Hey everyone, thanks for joining me today. So it's August 31st. This podcast will drop on August 1st. I'll be taking a week off to just kind of reset and get things ready for the next season. So it'll be 20 episodes of season three when this one comes out. It's actually coming out right before the 20th anniversary of September 11th. So it is totally fitting that I have this guest because she actually made a documentary film no responders left behind about 9-11 responder, first responders. And Kelly Zemnikis is someone I met online in the comedy circuit. And we, I would say, became friends. I would consider her someone that I don't know very well, but I really like and, and will continue to form a relationship with. And she's really great. She's from Canada. I think she might be... Now she's my second Canadian guest, actually. I was going to say the first. She's my second one. First Canadian comedian guest, does that count? <laughs> and she's done this amazing documentary that I can't wait to see. It'll be on Discovery Plus. So if you have Discovery Plus, look out for it. I think September 9th when it comes out. But I really want to, first of all, promote that. I think what I learned in talking to her about that, and we'll talk about the process of producing a documentary, we had to have a, we had a really interesting chat because she has a lot of things that are going on and she's worked in entertainment and television for a long time on the production side and the back side of things. And what I got from her regarding the documentary was just the amount of dedication it takes to get things done. And I think that's one thing people don't think about when they see a movie or TV show or even listen to a podcast or anything. A lot of times people will look at what someone else does in their accomplishments and not think about the work that it took to get there. And they might almost get jealous like, oh, well, I wish I could make a movie or I wish I could do that, but you can, but it takes a long time. And I think the five-year process to make a documentary just shows that, but it also shows that if you dedicate yourself to something, you will achieve it. You will. You might not achieve the documentary getting onto a major network, but you might achieve actually finishing it. And that's even how I felt working on my comedy lately. I just have to remember not to compare and not to think about what other people are doing, but really just stay dedicated to the craft I'm doing. I don't know if anyone needs to hear that, but I just, that's what I got from Kelly was really listening and thinking, yeah, you know what, what I admire is she sticks with it. And that's something I like to think I do and I want to do, do more of. Um, it got, this episode, it was interesting because there's always different parts of people. And when we talked about why Kelly got into comedy, she'll talk about her friends, her, well, really her, I would say soulmate and her best friend and love of her life, um, the ca cancer diagnosis he had and the loss of him. And we, we both got emotional. We both cried. And I will, I will, I guess this could be a trigger warning that, you know, maybe if someone did lose someone recently, it might be difficult to listen to. Um, neither one of us dwells on anything, but I think it's both fueled both of our desires to just keep doing things and, um, think about how loss affects us. And I, I don't want to tell her story right here, but I will say from my perspective, I mean, today's overdose awareness day that's, um, in the U S anyway. And of course I thought of my, my younger brother and who I lost, uh, well, I guess it's 12 years ago now. And one thing that that loss and a couple other losses, I lost one of my best friends, Doug, to cancer and I lost my uncle to cancer and those are the major I mean I lost my grandma too but I will say that those three were the major ones for me that really changed my life and affected my life in a certain way and I strongly believe that the way we can best honor remember people is by by just keeping going and by just doing the things that we want to do that really they can't do maybe anymore or Maybe they wouldn't want to. Like, I don't know if any of them, <laughs> or my grandma, I don't know if any of those people would have wanted a podcast. I don't think so. But I do think that there are things in my life that I do to honor them that really just help me with it when I'm grieving. I don't think grief stops. I don't think grief stops after a week or two weeks or five years or ten years. But I think what we do with it changes. And so I really appreciate Kelly taking the time to talk to me about a major motivation for her, a major thing that happened in her life, a major loss for her, and how it affected her moving forward. And I just, I, I hope that someone listens and 
and hears it and feels the warmth that I felt listening back, just knowing that I was kind of walking in memory of some people that day that we had that conversation, even now as I'm talking about it. I think that's it. So like I said, going to take a week off, so there will be a gap. I'll be back. I'll be promoting this episode again next week because I really want to, especially around 9-11, um, the 20-year mark, it's it's big. And some there's all these like memes, never forget, you know, hashtag never forget. But the truth is that people forget and people move on. Something else happens. So this documentary is really important and continuing to talk about these things are really important because there's a whole generation of kids right now who didn't experience this, for one thing. I I know it's something I'll never forget. I was in a newsroom. I was working in San Diego as a student. I was in a newsroom, and we all got called in because school had been canceled. We all got called in that day, and I was just at the news desk just watching TV, but working, so I couldn't react. There was no emotional reaction. It was just kind of making sure we got news out in this small newsroom in San Diego, and I remember all of us in the parking lot around 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., I don't know, when we finally went off the air that night, then crying, then standing together and starting to process. Um, So, yeah, it is a thing to never forget, but, you know, and then we had a major ending to uh, the U.S. presence in Afghanistan in the last week, and that's a huge milestone too. And I think, um, this episode, it's really, (laughs) there's a lot, there's a lot in it because it's really light and fun and we have a good time, but then there's also just some things to think about here too. So I really, I'm glad that this is the way I'm ending season four in honor of John feel, who is featured in the no responders left behind documentary. I will be donating to the feel good foundation, which I'll be linking to in the show notes. So I think that'll do it for the start of the podcast. I kind of went up and down there, I know, but thanks for bearing with me, and I look forward to you hearing this episode. Take care. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. All right, everyone. I have another person who I met online that's a comedian that I'm really excited to talk to because she's just doing some cool stuff. So Kelly Zemnikis, she is a comedian, a freelance writer, a documentary filmmaker, and a YouTuber. Did I get everything, Kelly? I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and you have a YouTube show, I guess. So say, and you're a baker, really, in my opinion. But yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of things. Oh, thank you so much. This is awesome to get to chat with you because that's been the one beautiful thing in a very, very bizarre, sad, crazy year is meeting folks like yourself and making these connections. So that's that's the gift out of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So do you just want to introduce maybe where you are right now and what you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in Toronto, Canada. I am grateful to be fully vaccinated and see the city slowly start to come back to life little by little. And uh, right now I'm working on three YouTube shows just because it's fun. You know, I've got my baking show. It'll be fine. I host now a monthly variety show called the Wonder Cheese Variety Hour. It's like a (laughs) 50s themed variety show. It's, It's a good time. And uh, I do a Mary Tyler Moore podcast with my buddy Casey Hackett, another comedian who I've gotten to know doing Zoom. And we just have a love of Mary, Mary Tyler Moore uh, and the show. So we do a podcast now. So I'm working on those things, trying to get some like writing packets together for some shows. So I'm I'm keeping busy. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, so the Mary Tyler Moore, I didn't know about yeah. that one. Are you guys like watching episodes and then talking about them or what are you doing? Yeah, so we've, we've just done one podcast so far where we kind of just went like the overall reasons why we love the show. The fact that that show still holds up 
after all these years. We both agree you can watch that and not feel like you're in a different, you know, time zone or anything. You know, you, you feel like it's pretty up to date. And, you know, as two single gals trying to make our way, there's tons of relatable content in Mary. So we're now going to start getting into certain episodes. Like I know for episode two, which will be out the first Friday in July, we're going to look at parental relationships. So the relationship Rhoda had with her mom, Mary with her family. And we're going to like dissect certain certain themes each episode. So yeah, there's a oh. lot to dive into. It's it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds that does sound fun. And shows don't all hold up. I, I love Frasier, so I've been rewatching it. Me too. And now they've announced it's gonna come back, but I know. Okay, he says some crazy stuff like about women. Like I just remember him saying like what sweet angel is this when he saw this woman? <laughs> it was so cringy. <laughs> I'm like, it's so gross. And I've always had this weird um, thing for Kelsey Grammer, too. Yeah. And I know I wouldn't in real life because our politics aren't even aligned at all. But, like, he's just very, on that show, I'm just like, ew, kind of, you know? <laughs> there's, there's, like, I, that's one show I have been rewatching hard. <laughs> I did not get into Tiger King. I am proud of the fact that I have not seen an episode. <laughs> I do not own an air fryer, but I did spend a lot of time rewatching Frasier. Mm. And yeah, there were definitely certain moments. There was that other kind of radio station, Mad Dog. Was oh, that? Bulldog. Bulldog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely certain lines of dialogue from that show that you're like, mm, but <laughs> still super entertaining. <laughs> oh, God, it's so great. And I love um, David Hyde Pierce. I just, oh my God. I don't think I appreciated him enough then because his physical comedy is just beautiful. Yeah. You know, it just really so, is. So it's just so, yeah. so good. I'm kind of <laughs> like, I'm anxious for a reboot because mm-hmm. that show definitely could work today. But I think with a lot of stuff, there's such magic in what they did that I, kind yeah. of, it's like the princess bride. Are they still making a remake of that movie? Cause they shouldn't. <laughs> Didn't they do like a thing online over the pandemic, but it was the original cast. I don't know. I'm a little nervous too, because it's so good, but, but yeah, well, that's cool. So it's, yeah. it's nice. You're doing that. We'll talk about the baking show in a little bit, but I want to mm-hmm. talk, I guess about, you know, you had a big shift in your career, but I'd like to talk a little bit about your career before that. And then the shift just to set it up and just, you know, yeah. give suspense to this, this <laughs> podcast. Her life. Goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. But I know. So you, You've been a writer, so you have, you said, four plays, right? Yeah. Which have all mm-hmm. been performed, which is cool, and then one that went off-Broadway. So you can talk a little bit about your writing. Absolutely, yeah. I find that a lot of, uh, a lot of things in my life I just tripped into, uh, fell into, and followed a path. There's been no, like, I studied this, or I had this on my vision board. I just was in the right moment and was listening well i feel like that's the one thing i can really hold on to i listen to my gut so i trust Mm. my gut a lot but yeah i like as a kid thinking back to like when i was 10 or 11 i knew that i wanted to be involved in television in in some aspect and i started uh at working at my local cable station when i was i think about 15 years old. I was the only gal there. I was working on the crew, like pulling cables, doing tech stuff. Cause I I'm fascinated by control room panels and buttons. What do the buttons do? (laughs) (laughs) And I, I got, I got into a, a college here in Toronto, Centennial college where listeners know of the show Degrassi high Mm. is actually where they shot Degrassi High. So that's where I went to college. And I was in a radio and television broadcasting program and found my way into TV shows by way of a production coordinator. I knew I wanted to get in there, you know, totally ignoring the fact that I loved Letterman and I always wanted to get Mm. to a comedy club. Like the signs of what I'm doing now were there, but I wasn't focused on it. And yeah, uh, yeah, I worked for about 15 years as a production coordinator on like sketch comedy shows, home renovation shows like the Property Brothers, Deal or No Deal, uh, the Canadian version. And that was my life. I was behind the scenes being a part of the machinery of making a show. And I kind of got stuck in a box of like everyone knew I was good at scheduling. I was good at booking crews. 
But my instincts were starting to go, Zanikas, you need to be writing. You need to be on the other side of this. And I, I escaped. It was probably about 34 when I made a really big career shift from doing that to waitressing. <laughs> Just, <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, which someone may be like, sorry, you did what now? Like, usually you go from waitressing to the cool TV job. Mm-hmm. But I went from the cool TV job to, you know, refilling ketchup bottles and making sure there were enough napkins and you had creamer for your coffee because I was miserable. I love TV. I love, but I love creating. And I thought what I was doing was a way into that. And then as sometimes happens in our lives, we follow a path and we hit a wall. And then you're kind of like stuck in this corn maze of like, how do I get out of this corn maze? Mm -hmm. And yeah, my local diner was looking for a waitress and the line cook was like, you are here every day. Do you want to work here? And I said, yes. And (laughs) my life changed. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, did it just simplify things for you for a little bit so you could just reflect or what? It did. It was kind of like your laundry blowing up or your dishwasher exploding. It was, it was sort of like the proverbial soap and bubbles were everywhere. Mm -hmm. I... I owned a home and, uh, you know, which, you know, you're following all the check marks of like being a quote unquote good adult. I had a TV job and I owned property and I was making my way as a single gal, you know, but I wasn't happy. And, and I, I, you know, I was indulging in, you know, wine a little more and I was noticing things were not working out. And when I made this leap of just saying yes, of like, yeah, I need I need to clear my head. I got to do something. You're the first person to suggest I will take your offer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think much about it. But there was some panic of like, okay, my income just dropped significantly. Mm-hmm. I own a house. But it's, I kept, I just kept like my head above water. And I was like, I'm going to figure this out because something Something in me was like, you're doing the right thing. We're not there yet, but just just keep afloat. And I went from, you know, the highly stressful world of TV production and people calling me at all hours of the night Mm -hmm. because their makeup trailer wasn't ready to the easy breezy world of serving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, But what that job did was it got me talking to people that I didn't know. It helped me find my voice. It helped me find myself. That would not have happened had I stayed where I was. I don't think we would be talking if I had stayed at that TV job. Right. No. Well, how how did you, so did you do any kind of job like that either in high school or later? Like, you know, I worked in a shoe store and I worked in the cafeteria and stuff like that. Did you do those kind of jobs where you always, you sounds like you were in TV, like, forever yeah i i was like a tiny businesswoman from the mm. age of 10 <laughs> 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 i was in all honesty i was applying to colleges for app for packages when i was in fifth grade wow of like i remember writing to like an art school in miami because i knew they had a tv program i was a very bizarro child <laughs> I knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted to be in that magic box in my living room. You know, I, yeah. there was something really, you know, I've got two parents who worked in advertising. Mm. So the television was like another sibling for me. And I was amazed at all these programs, you know, but my brain wasn't really like, what can I do to do this? I know yeah. I want to do that. So, yeah, I really, I mean, I had a very brief stint at a sporting goods store. And I worked for like a week at a video store, but no, whatever internship I could get at a local TV station, I was doing from the age of 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the service jobs kind of give you a different perspective on people too. I don't Oh my gosh. If you experienced that, but yeah. <laughs> I think doing that for the first time at what, 34, 35, mm-hmm. I think that should be like a high school requirement requirement for people to do a service industry job at some point in their life. Yeah. Because you're right. People are different when that, when that, you know, dynamic changes of like the, 
you know, the, the status changes like customer server, people can take some liberties with that. And with my writing storyteller brain, it made for amazing characters. I could just file away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm so, sure it did. Did you find yourself then being out of the whole production side of things and having more space to breathe as far as just maybe more spare time, I guess, because you were in a wage kind of job? Is that what led you to being able to start writing? Well, I've always been that kid that was writing really awkward, angsty poetry before my anxiety and panic attacks were diagnosed. Writing poetry got me through like my teen years, 100%. I've always been a kid who's carried around a notebook and Mm -hmm. taken notes on lines I heard or written, you know, little plays in my head or I've always been like, I've always been a storyteller. And with the working at the diner, I went through a little bit of some some major anxiety and some moments of depression of like, what on earth did I just do? You know, mm. because like folks I had worked on shows with would come in and I'd be getting them a sandwich and I felt really weird because they're like, what are you doing here? And, and then one day I remember my friend Andrew came in. I, he was working on a show, they were on their lunch break, and he was talking about how rough the day was. And I had this light bulb moment as he left of like, wow, he's got to go be on set for 10 more hours, and mm-hmm. I need to go eat this sandwich. And this like, it was like the clouds broke for me. I was like, whoa, I can do whatever I want now. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a power move. You know, this is pretty cool. And I just kept kept up with the journaling. I started playwriting during my TV time. That was okay. like my my outlet when I worked on TV shows was either being in my kitchen or playwriting and just writing plays and writing stories. And so it's interesting how those roads all interconnected by the time I was like in my late 30s. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great though. I think it's yeah. uh, it's kind of almost your sabbatical in a way, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Because, yeah, I mean, that's, that's similar, too, but you get probably get paid differently. Tell me about how does a drug deal become a decent third date? And that's not a question I'm asking you, but I'm asking you. That's the title of your play. Just so people know, I'm not, like, getting weird advice now, you know? It's a terrible date idea. I'll just put that out there. So the backstory on this is when I was working, I worked on this long-running a radio TV sketch comedy series here in Canada called Royal Canadian Air Force. It was on Mm -hmm. for a long, long time. And I worked on the TV version of it. And I was, I was in the, the lobby. I was coming back up to my desk. I ran into a friend from high school and he had a buddy with him who was working on the same show he was on. And when our mutual friend left, his buddy was like, Kelly's a Nickus were you the soup girl? I was like, excuse me. And he from our mutual friend had heard this story of when I was in high school and I had a crush on a boy who was sick. I made him soup and brought it to his house. And behind my back, I didn't realize I had been deemed the soup girl because (laughs) they all thought that was hilarious. And when you are 16, it's kind of weird to bring a crush soup. Well, that's nice, but then you don't want to be called the soup girl. I went home, and in this fit of rage-fueled creativity, I started writing down all these things that had happened in my life, romance-wise. One Mm. of which was this story of when I had, I think we dated for about a month, but I, I met a guy in a theater production, turned out to have a side job as a drug dealer, Yeah, and... One of our dates after dinner, he said, do you want to come run an errand with me? And I said, sure. And on the way, on, we're driving. And on the way there, he's starting to tell me what to do if the cops come. And it clicked in that I was being prepped to be the lookout. <laughs> and so I go home with all this rage field creativity. I start journaling all these stories. And that eventually became this this uh, one-act play that I wrote called How Does a Drug Deal Become a Decent Third Date? I think it took me, because it was my first play, 
it took me probably start to finish about three and a half or four years oh, okay. to do. But with all the comedy connections I have here in Toronto, my friends were awesome and up for the job. And we, we did the Fringe Festival circuit. And as you mentioned, it went off off Broadway by some wondrous stroke of luck. Yeah, that's like my little side hustle is playwriting. I haven't dipped into a new play in a few years, but but I, I just... I just love creating these worlds. I've ever mm -hmm. since I was a kid, I've loved doing that. So what's it like for you seeing people then interpret your work? I mean, do you direct it eventually or someone no. else does? No, interestingly, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a music video director when I discovered like MTV or here yeah. in Canada, much music. And that was the reason why I went to the, the college I went to and I quickly learned I am a terrible director. I'm a very good producer, but I'm a terrible director. <laughs> and so I don't direct. I, I put on hat of producer and playwright. And I, it's kind of like sending your kid off to college. You know, I give the script when it's done to the director. And then this becomes someone else's play that I get to watch grow. And when you have the, the ability to see your words and your your scenes that you created in your mind in your living room late at night come to life. It's trippy when you can make someone laugh, as you know, doing stand up. Oh my gosh. Like I wrote that in my bedroom and now I'm yeah. at this club and people are laughing. It's such an amazing, cool thing to do. And when it works, it's great. And when it doesn't, you feel so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, 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 awesome. it's, it's incredible how the, the mood swing you can go oh, through okay. just from that. You know, oh, yeah. like, because you anticipate for me, well, just talking about comedy, but I have the same anticipation prior to the gig or the set. And then after, though, it can go either way. It's like a, you know, oh, yeah. depending on how it went. So it's crazy. Oh, definitely. You are either having your celebratory beer or you are buying donuts, lots of donuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's questioning your life choices. <laughs> yeah, you are. So it's crazy. have you thought about acting in one of your plays? You know, it's funny doing stand-up. My memory is akin to Swiss cheese. <laughs> I write these things, but I'm like, I can memorize this. But I, I seem to do okay with the stand-up format. Thankfully, knock on wood, that continues. No, I have no, I've never had any desire to be in any of the plays I've done. That being said, with the Wonder Cheese Variety Hour, which is a sketch comedy show... I'm now starting, I found in the past couple of years, I'm like, yeah, I want to play on camera a bit more. Let's go down this mm -hmm. road a little bit, which is super fun. But but ultimately, I'm still that kid who was 14 years old and was mystified by the panel of buttons in the control room. I yeah. like providing the words and seeing them come to life. Yeah, I still like being behind the scenes. I still do, you know, despite the fact that I do stand up. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Well. And I guess that my question is then with the standup though, I mean, you do perform in that case. So yeah. a couple things, first of all, is your writing process different for that than it is for the plays in the sense that like, do you derive the material from somewhere else or is it just like, Oh, this would be more of a joke or a, a quick, a short bit versus this is something I would turn into a longer form. Yeah. Like my, my, Stand-up style, I would I would deem to be storytelling. You know, I go mm -hmm. a bit longer with my things. I'm not so yeah. much like joke punchline kind of kind of comic. Me neither. But interestingly, the playwriting has been really awesome prep for doing stand-up because as I say, I've always been someone who's carried around a notebook, who's made like mm -hmm. a notation of a comment I've heard or a commercial or something that pops into my head. And that's how I write now. Like, I'm not a comedian who, you know, sets aside an hour at a coffee shop and I write. I do most of my writing in the bathroom. I'm going to be honest with you. Not that I'm <laughs> on the toilet, but yeah. I find the bathroom when I'm having a bath or a shower. My mind is mm -hmm. really blank and open. And if I hear a funny line or if I, oh, yeah, that would be a great bit. As soon as I'm out of the shower, I'm writing it down. That's really how I write. I I, I just let it sort of come my way. I have a very loosey-goosey writing style. 
No, I'm actually, I'm the same. I mean, I, I see the value in sitting and writing every day and I've tried it. And when I've been in classes and stuff, but normally it's kind of like, yeah, I'll just have all these like notes in my iPhone and then I'll Mm -hmm. come back to something and then I'll be like, Oh, what, why did I say that? And sometimes I'll start writing about something different, but it's, it's very similar. Like I, I don't sit and write for an hour necessarily. It's just like, Oh, I have more to do with this now. And then I'm done. And it could be a minute. You know, and I'll feel like I did everything. <laughs> and I don't know if you feel this, but like when I have comedian friends who are like, hey, do you want to come? Like when they talk about their process and like, oh, yeah, I make sure I, I write for, two, you know, two hours every day. I'm like, I don't do that. Is that OK that I don't? Do that? <laughs> yeah, don't. it's kind of like my athletic friends. I'm like, oh, you work out that much a day? I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> I'm like, but I can tell that. But on stage, I'm still pretty much comparable <laughs> to the yeah. people who write 20 minutes a day or whatever. Because <laughs> sometimes wow. I'm like, well, what, what are you writing? The same thing over and over? Which, I mean, I'm doing a solo show right now, so I am. I'm rewriting it constantly, constantly. Nice. And I bet it's similar to the play, but it's, yeah, that's kind of, that's what I do. And then do you find, like, the performance aspect? Because you've spent so much time behind the scenes and coordinating and in production. And actually, mm-hmm. I'm just changing the question I was going to ask mm-hmm. because... One thing I've noticed is that there are incredibly unorganized people. <laughs> what? In stand up, for example. Shocking. <laughs> so that's just an observation, I suppose. But do you find it hard not to try to organize things when you're when you see something? Like sometimes I go, you know, if you had a list, like Oh, I am not ashamed of the fact that I am a girl who is all about highlighters and charts and graphs. I, you know, there's always that, like that, that thinking that, Oh, to be a creative person, you have to be messy and Mm -hmm. like everything has to be everywhere. I am so not, I, I can't, you know, my friends will joke when I say I'm like tidying my apartment. They're like, is a magazine out of place? Like what (laughs) is up? I am organized chaos. Uh, That's the best Wait, yeah, so I make I make no bones about, you know, telling someone, hey, you know, a schedule is a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. But then my <laughs> the question I was going to ask first, and then I just had that idea, was just with the performing, do you enjoy performing your own words and your own work in the comedy realm? And how do you feel like that might be different than, you know, how you would consider about performing in a play other than the memory thing, but just how is that for you? It's, it's kind of funny when I, when I did my first set, I wanted to just challenge myself. It was really like a personal, can you do this? Let's try to jump off this plank. And I did it. And my body just went, yes, yes, yes. Bing, bing, bing. You need to do more of this. Yeah. It's, it's, I love it. And I love it just as much as I love writing words for other people and punching mm-hmm. up a script. Anything I get to do, and I'm starting to cry because I think maybe the reason why I got into stand-up might be coming up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anything I get to do in this realm of storytelling, I just, I just feel so damn grateful. Whether I'm doing mm-hmm. stand-up or writing a play, it's, it's just as fun. Nothing, you know... It doesn't make me kind of Jones to act in my own play. That's separate. Let me do that thing. Yeah, I just feel very lucky to get to do what I do. Yeah, and you have that appreciation for what you're getting to do, so you don't need to be the center of attention all the time, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, let me play where you need me. Do you need me to do craft services, get your sandwiches? I'll be as happy to make your lunch as I will be to do your Yeah, Like, it doesn't matter. You are a co-producer on a documentary. Yeah. Right? No Responders Left Behind. So... I want to hear about the documentary, but also I want to hear about like, because I think a lot of people might not know, and I kind of have an idea of what a producer does, but can you talk about that kind of work as well? For sure. As I say, like I, I got into TV production in college thinking I'd be the director, being the person telling you to go here and you to go here and that lighting to go here. And I'm not, I'm not good at barking orders. I'm, I'm not good at that, but mm-hmm. what my strength seems to lie in is knowing who to call so you have, you know, all the props. 
making sure everybody on the team knows what they're doing, making sure there's enough but money for lunch. You're organizing all the bits and pieces that nobody is ever going to think about when they see a show. You're you're making sure the shooting schedules together, that the executives are happy, the people running the club are happy, the patrons are happy. Is the tech person okay? Do you have the mics? Have the posters been done? Have the have the event rights been sent out? Is the Facebook thing up to date? Is someone manning? So you're kind of like managing the circus, you know, and mm-hmm. letting the person on stage shine. That that sort of would be like. The ringleader of the circus, I guess, would be yeah, a, yeah. a good way to talk about being a producer. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that yeah. translates into, like, if you look at a TV show, it translates into whatever tasks are required for that. And it's really being, exactly. like, yeah. logistics and... and yeah. And yeah. when it comes to producing, like, the comedy shows that I do, whether they're in person or online, you know, making sure the listings are out, that if there's any press to do, that gets set up, making sure we have audience, making sure talent gets money. Yeah, just organizing, doing all doing all the tidy up at the apartment, you know, and then <laughs> making sure there's a good show. <laughs> yeah. So then with, with no responders left behind, yeah. what's the I, I know I mean I've read about it and <laughs> seen your posts, but for people who don't, what's it about? So this is my featured film debut, my documentary debut, and it is about how sick 9-11 first responders are getting in the years since mm-hmm. 9-11, which will be 20 years this September. Wow. A lot of people, you know, will will put that in the past. We'll talk about it as a thing that happened. The towers came down. Incredibly sad. We are moving on. But for thousands and thousands of people, they are dealing with illnesses on a daily basis. Women who are pregnant and at ground zero, the babies that were in utero, they're dealing with illnesses now that resulted from all those chemicals and fumes being Hmm. in the air. So we're doing a film about how when first responders aren't top of mind, we tend to forget about them. But we do need to keep them in mind when they're out of mind because they could be dealing with cancers or, or asthmas or mental health issues or PTSD. And I came upon the story by merely just being a fan of the daily show with John Stewart because mm-hmm. he was such an advocate for 9-11 first responders. And through an accidental meeting that was spur- spurred by a tweet I sent, 9-11 first responders saw it and we connected, I immediately, again, light bulb moment, I was like, how can I help you guys? What can I do? And my storytelling instinct kicked in. And I ended up pitching this idea of coming down to film them. And it became the documentary. I follow specifically a man named John Field, who runs an organization called the Feel Good Foundation out of his home in Long Island. And he was a 9-11 responder. He went down as a construction guy. Uh, just to help move debris. And he now runs this collective, this, this, you know, this agency that helps anybody dealing with a 9-11 illness, no matter if you were just someone in passing by or if you were a first responder. And he's just a dude in Long Island. And he is doing the work that I think government officials and people who have much more power than him should be doing. But Everybody who needs help with a 9-11 issue goes to John Feel, a guy who lives in a bungalow in Long Island. Huh. He's, he's just, he's a saint. The guy's just, it, it's ridiculous. It's, it's amazing. We have individually, we have the power to do anything. And he's just such a great example of that. So hmm. I'm really happy to tell this story. Yeah. yeah I, no, just, it's one of those things too, where I think, and one thing I talk a lot about on this podcast is just what you just said, that people can do anything like that. There's the ability. It's just somehow figuring that out for yourself, you know, because a lot of people will limit themselves and no one else has limited them. Absolutely. And John, this is something John says in the film, but a lot of people don't think that they have the right to go down and talk to their elected officials. Mm-hmm. You elected them. You have the right to talk to them and get on their case and make sure they're doing what they're elected to. They work for you. 
yeah, make they them do. work we, for you. <laughs> they're they're getting they're getting a salary and they're getting healthcare and they're getting everything yeah. off of our taxes that we're yeah. paying. Yeah. And, no. and I mean, a lot of people think that, oh, you know, if you were a firefighter or a police officer or an ambulance guy and you were at 9-11, you've got insurance to cover all of that. But the fact is there's limitations to what can be covered. And, you know, we, we've spoken to so many folks who the medical bills were just like hundreds and thousands of dollars because they, you know, you're covered for like two x-rays. Cool. Your doctor says you need 15 x-rays. You have to pay for the other 13. Mm -hmm. So it, to me, like as a Canadian covering this story, one thing that really spurred me about wanting to highlight what they're going through and what John is doing was really just out of why on earth is this even a thing? Like <laughs> this shouldn't be a thing. Right. <laughs> you know, right. just yeah. blows my mind. You know. Well, yeah, being an expat in the UK in the last year, I mean, it's eye-opening, right? Yeah. Because I need to get an MRI annually, and I just went and I didn't have to pay anything. I mean, I'm paying taxes here, and I'm you know working and paying taxes and all that, but yeah. it usually it's like this thing where I'll call the insurance company and I'll get the list of MRI or radiology providers mm -hmm. to find out which one has the best rates for what I need and then call them and try to get them. Cause I learned this trick cause this insurance lady told me one time, huh. but to have to do that because they'll send you to the one that's the most expensive that's affiliated with the hospital. That's not right. covered by insurance. It's crazy. Right. And yeah. I don't understand that either. And then, and that's just, you know, and I'm not certainly not a first responder or anything, but then just thinking about people who, have emergencies or have like chronic illnesses like that or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah. really awful. The, the buildings that just, uh, the building that just came down yeah. in Miami, Florida, that just disaster of disasters. Yeah. Doing the work I did on, on no responders. My thinking is like, how are they going to be in like, you know, a year from now, what are they mm -hmm. breathing in? That's there because like, just as an example, we talk about this in the movie, but like if you break one fluorescent light bulb, not really a big deal. If you think about how many computer screens and fluorescent light bulbs and phones were in that condo building in Miami, mm. that becomes a cocktail of toxins that you're breathing mm. in that the people passing by five years from now may not associate their illness with mm. the fact that they were just around a bunch of computer screens that blew up, right? Because there's oh. stuff in that. Yeah. And and with the, with the Twin Towers... Think about how many fluorescent light bulbs were on each floor. No wonder the sky was green. The stuff coming out of the ground was green. Mm -hmm. You know, and back then, the hopefully, hopefully the folks in Miami have a bit better protection. But my brain immediately went there when I saw the news. I was sure. like, what are they breathing in? Are they going to be okay six months from now? Yeah. Wow. So with this documentary, what's the path? forward with it i know i saw a couple of posts about it but it's yeah yeah it's funny like we we finished the film we were set to do some festival stuff in 2020 <laughs> the world shut down and my yeah. thought immediately went to oh my gosh i have just made the most expensive home movie i'm ever going to make how are we going to sell this in a pandemic what's going to happen yeah. but festival stuff moved online pitch meetings moved online and Blue Ant Media, which is based out of Toronto and L.A. and probably other locations that I can't think of right now. But Blue Ant Media reached out and said, we want to distribute this film. So we had Great. an amazing stroke of luck last year. And then just a few weeks back, we got to tell the world that Discovery Plus will be showing our film this September. So people get to see it. And I'm so excited. Yeah. yeah. And then from there. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. No, that, well, congratulations. That's really, it's really remarkable. So how long did it take from when you guys basically tweeted to yeah, having it tweet, ready? That tweet I sent was in December of 2015 and we sold the film in March or sorry, in May. Well, it was at the end of last year. So five years, it was five year, mm -hmm. five year process of that tweet to the landing discovery. So Wow. So how do you deal with these things having like this long tail kind of these processes for you? I think one thing that could happen is maybe 
people and maybe even myself, but mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily speaking for myself right now. People might get discouraged by something taking too long. You know, how have you dealt with that? This is not a quick way to financial freedom. This is not <laughs> a fast track to getting your name on an AMC movie screen, <laughs> uh, especially because I'm doing documentary. I'm not doing a mm-hmm. Fast and Furious. You know, I'm not. Right. I'm not there. Although those are very entertaining films, but this. This is because you love to do it. This is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this is my first documentary. I'd never made a documentary before, but I'm a storyteller. And I knew that there was a story there that if I didn't know who John Feel was, chances are you don't know who John Feel is. There's someone else in my circle who doesn't know who this man is. And he's such... He's such an example of the power of community that I'm like, I've got to talk about this because A, you are just a legit hero and B, your government should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. So it's, you got to, you got to get in the roller coaster cart and just brace yourself and have patience. Like this film, I guess it's been about two years now that Jon Stewart was back in Congress, made this very impassioned plea. Prior to that happening, I'd say six months prior to that happening, our film was done. Our film was finished. We thought we had this buddy road picture kind of thing between John Feel and a man named Ray Pfeiffer and John Stewart too. And we thought we had this like buddy film, you know, didn't really have like a big flashy ending, but we told an interesting story of friendship. And then we found out that one of the streams of funding that they had gone for was almost out of money. And the John Stewart thing happened. And it was like the film gods went, here is an ending that you couldn't have put together in post. So we had to get back down to America, you know, hire the camera guys again, get back on the horse, recut the film. And, you know, it yeah, a lot of friends were asking me over the past five years, like, when's your movie going to be done? And it's like, well, it's still a work in progress. Oh, it's taking a long time. Yeah, documentary filmmaking, you do it because you believe in the story and you're passionate about it and you are not in it for the money. <laughs> yeah. If money comes, amazing. But that's never been my mode of operation for anything I do. If I can mm-hmm. make something that makes you laugh, makes you think, brings a tear to your eye. I've done my job. If I get paid for it, I sing on the cake. Yeah. But never the, never the intention. It's like getting into comedy, wanting to be at just for laughs or wanting to do a big show in the UK. Or if that is your goal, you have set yourself up for failure before you even Mm -hmm. start, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It's yeah. Do it because you love it. You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, even, well, yeah, in general performing, I mean, it's like a matter of just getting on the stage is the accomplishment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then being the best or funniest or getting laughs and whatever. I mean, then it's all just kind of adding on. Yeah. That's all gravy. Like if you, if you work on your craft and you enjoy what you do, then the just for laugh stuff will come, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That cart before horsing, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So as far as you getting into comedy, I mean, you have a definite story that there was a turning point for you there too. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. My, as I was telling you earlier, when anyone asked me, how did you get into stand up? Cause most comics I think have the, I was the class clown. I was that kind of person. I started doing stuff in clubs in Toronto as a technician back when I was a teenager, when I was that tiny business person with an admiration for the people I was setting up the mics for. And then when, again, like 34 to 36 was such a turning point in my life, but my, my first boyfriend, the love of my life, my bestie found out he had cancer and he found out way too late. And he from diagnosis to his passing wasn't that long. And for me, we had a big conversation in January of 2016. Mm. It ended up being our final phone call. 
And I left that phone conversation with this feeling of, I need to go try every single gosh darn thing on my list because I am able to. James is probably never going home. And I looked at myself and I was like, you are doing stand-up. And I found an open mic to do in Toronto. And I did it a week later. I was just like, dive into everything. He he left me because he never got to see me do stand-up. He died about yeah. two months later. But he left me with the power of saying yes. You know, which which I always had in me, but I don't know if you've had someone in your life like this, but he believed I could do things before I realized I could. He was an amazing coach. <laughs> yeah. And his his getting sick was I don't want to call it a gift. Right. It opened my eyes. Um Crying, Christ, I cannot talk about this. <laughs> well, that's okay. Because anybody left? who's listening who knows me knows I'm crying. So, yes. <laughs> but his, his getting sick gave me a lot of clarity, which I don't know I would have had. It may have taken me a lot longer to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand was, that. Yeah. It was, it was a nice parting gift. Yeah, yeah, I understand that completely because there's people I've lost who I was. It's funny. I was just talking to my mom about this recently, and even doing this, I'm sure has something to do with that too. Doing this podcast, but yeah. I've lost people, and I've lost. I lost one of my best friends too. He was a kind of a mentor and kind of like a brother to me. I've lost my brother too, and oh. I, I think the thing is sometimes I'll, I'll get peace or or still before a show or whatever because i i think they would have been proud yeah or like i'll do things you know like there's some charity work i do specifically in honor of my brother and that's the way i can just you know almost be okay with it right yeah yeah like so i get it yeah, like the, we're, you know, talking about having those shows that don't go well. And I, I don't feel it every show, but when I, because I can feel when he's in the room. I know when mm-hmm. James is here, it's a hard thing to describe, but if I see you nodding, like, if you know, you know, you know, they're there. And I, I have these moments where even on when things don't go well, and I'm like, why am I doing this? I can just hear him like, this is, you know, this is amazing you're doing this. Yeah. Like, this is insane. This is amazing. I am so proud of you. Look at you. It didn't go well. Yeah, but you did it, you know? He he swore a lot. So think of a lot of <laughs> F-bombs drops. <laughs> <laughs> but he was so proud of me. Mm-hmm. And, Yeah. I, well, yeah. yeah. I think the people who, the people who see you, the most clearly and certainly more clearly than you see yourself, are special. And yeah, if you can evoke that feeling that they gave you by honoring them by doing something that, you know, kind of that you know they would love that you did. That's yeah. That's the cool thing, you know. Yeah. The night, the night James and I met, which was at Second City in Toronto at the old fire hall where, you know, SCTV kind of roots got started there at the end of the show. Cause my friends were performing. The troupe I teched for was performing and I chose to be audience. Cause I knew James was in the booth. And afterwards he's like, why didn't you tell me you were like, you could have asked to be in the booth and run the show. I was like, no, it's your booth. I'm not going to do that. And he was like, well, I'm, I'm working on a theater show. Why don't you be my assistant stage manager? I was like, you've known me for 40 minutes. Like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, you're in, you're doing it. It was love at first sight. Like it was a friendship at first sight. It was, yeah, he, he would be so, so, so chuffed that I'm doing this. Like he would just be, yeah. Yeah. He would think this is great. This is gravy. This is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. 
No, yeah. well, that's, I mean, thanks for sharing that. I know that's difficult, but I think it's, um, yeah. people, people lose people. And especially in the last year, people lost a lot of people. And I, I think that it's hard to always know how to deal with that. I think it's hard to, to just understand. Cause I, I hate when people say, Oh, it was their time or something. <laughs> it just drives me nuts, but it's like, <laughs> okay, fine. You know, that's your opinion. But I just think that there's just different ways we can all remember people. So I think this is a beautiful way you're remembering him. So thanks for sharing that. Oh, any, you know, Anytime you can talk and, and you speaking of your brother, I think anytime we can talk about people we lose, just brings them back into the room, you know, mm-hmm. which we're doing them a service by doing that. And that way yeah. they don't, you know, completely vanish. Yeah. Yeah. Our memories yeah. are special. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, well, I really, well, I do appreciate it though. you doing that. That's so, a good thing. Now he tell me to cheer up and have a Guinness. <laughs> I know. Now I'm trying to, I'm like, well, what do I ask? I'm supposed to be the host. So, so, so now yeah. changing subjects, yeah. but also talking about stuff that you, you love doing. It'll be fine. Baking show. How did that come about? <laughs> Such an appropriate title for the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. But interestingly, something that was so nothing to do with the pandemic. That came about from having a couple of girlfriends over baking something. I was just having a girl's afternoon and I kept muttering, it'll be fine. Because this cake was not working. (laughs) 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 And I was like, Janice, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Lisa's going to be fine. And I kept saying it. I was like, you know what? That would be a really good name for a baking show Mm -hmm. like this is an awesome name for a show and as it happened a bunch of toronto comics and this would have been i think august of 2019 a bunch of toronto comics decided to do a 24-hour comedy show on this thing called twitch which i hadn't really heard yeah and they were having people which i can laugh now but at the time i was like how's this gonna work they were having stand-ups do comedy on their laptop. <laughs> Think about what Which, happened months later. Yeah. So they were having folks do that. And I said, well, I don't think I want to do stand-up to nobody. <laughs> 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 but I'll, can I pitch my cooking show idea? And it got accepted. And I filmed It'll Be Fine, a baking show for this 24-hour comedy thing. Hmm. And... I had such a blast doing it. I was like, why don't I do another one? And by the time the world shut down, I think I had done, uh, I think by March, I think I'd done maybe 12 episodes of the show. Uh, and I'm just about to air my 140th episode. Amazing. You know, you're going to be coming on soon. Yeah, it's I'm coming on. It's going to be so much yeah. fun. <laughs> my sister's probably going to be annoyed that I'm doing a baking show and she's not. <laughs> but doing it on zoom has been just a blast because now I can bake and cook and talk with people from all over. Now that myself and friends are double vaxxed, I'll have people back in the kitchen, but now I get to do a hybrid of it. So, you know, I thought maybe we'd do 200 and I'd stop, but who knows? I don't know. It's fun. Uh, Cooking and baking is my Zen. So it's just, it's a blast. And then I get to talk to people. So it's, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean that, I know that's so funny about the comedy. I didn't want to perform to no one. Yeah. We'll get used to it. (laughs) Fast forward. I feel like that festival opened up some portal that no one was realizing. I know. I'm almost like maybe they're to blame. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. So that's how that got started. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, that's no, that's great. I'm looking forward to it. And I don't, this will probably, who knows when this will go up versus that, but definitely we'll share it anyway and, and share all your stuff in show notes and my website. But is there anything we didn't cover that you want to cover? I guess just letting folks know they can go to my YouTube channel and see yeah. all the crazy things I'm doing, be it the variety show with Wonder Cheese or the podcast or, you know, the baking show. And occasionally, you know, my stand-up sets get tossed on there, too. Um, yeah, I'm just, you know, trying the 
I'm just making my own content. You know, I'm not waiting for anyone to like give me a show. I'm just making my own stuff and having fun. So yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Just have fun. Yeah, that's cool. And I usually ask if you have any advice or mantra you want to share. Is that it? Or do you have any other? I have, you can't, well, if listeners can't see, just think hard and you can see my shoulder. But I have a tattoo on my back. I got my very first tattoo after James died. So I was, what, 38 when I got my first tattoo <laughs> or something. But my, my thing, I have two things that I live by. The shoulder, which says you're braver than you believe and stronger mm. than you seem and smarter than you think, which is Christopher Robin, Winnie the Pooh. And then my other mantra is from Amy Poehler's book, Yes, Please, which is just do the thing. Simple, but just stop talking about what you've been wanting to do. Try it. If it doesn't work out, do something else. Well, cool. No, that's that's nice. So thank you for sharing that, too. Oh, my pleasure. So now we have the last five questions. They're called the fun five. Yay. Let's see. (laughs) So <laughs> the first the first one, what's the oldest t-shirt you have and still wear? My New Kids on the Block Magic Summer 1990 shirt <laughs> in white, which according to eBay is worth about $250. Oh, wow. That's a nice, yeah. Because it's white. I guess they didn't make a lot of the white shirt. <laughs> that's the white <laughs> shirt. Okay. And... <laughs> That was unnecessary to do. Okay. All right. If every day was really Groundhog's Day, like it's kind of seemed at least a little bit, little not too far in the past, what song would you have your alarm play every morning? Oh my gosh. That's a really good question. I think just because I was listening to the cassette, because I still listen to cassettes. You're such a hipster millennial person or something. A roller skating jam named Saturday by De La Soul. Okay. It's a wow. great tune. It's off of De La Soul is Dead, which is like my desert album island pick. Oh, cool. All right. Good. I look forward to to checking that out, actually. I don't even know it, but I, I have a I Spotify playlist. I just put it on so. Facebook today. So go to my Facebook oh, Okay. Yeah. yeah, I do see that you put songs on there. Okay, cool. All right. Very important one. Coffee or tea or neither? Coffee, 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 coffee. Any sort of way or? Black. Could be black. Okay. Yeah, that's what I've ended up with, too. Cool. All right. Yeah. And can you think of a time that you laughed so hard you cried or just couldn't stop or maybe something that makes you do that when you conjure it? There have been moments where I, I mean, you don't do it as much now, but I would go to like a greeting card store and my mother and I would just be doubled over laughing at Hallmark cards. (laughs) I have such beautiful like memories in my head of like, Cause I'm a girl who even now I still send cards and postcards, you know, birthday cards, actual birthday cards. And I've just doubled over. My mom and I will get on fits of laughter where we just, we almost throw up. We're just laughing. so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. Do you remember, can you think of one that's like crazy? Those shoebox ladies are always funny. That lady. The shoebox ladies are always funny. I have taken to the past few years, And I did it just now for Father's Day, where I will go to, like, another section of the card store, like, congrats on your graduation, and scratch out graduation, and write, congrats on Father's Day. Like, I make my own card (laughs) from the other cards. (laughs) That's fun. That's always a trip. I gave my my dad and my brother, my youngest brother, who's got a couple kids, uh, I did that with, with theirs. I got, like, you know... Congrats on your ninth birthday. Congrats on Father's Day. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Cool. All right. And the last one, who inspires you right now? Oh, man. Who inspires me right now? That's that's another really good question. Jeez. I really don't know. I'm around so much awesome energy every day doing online comedy and, you know, specific names like my fellow Toronto comic Desiree Walsh. You know, doing doing the online hustle like holy moly. Hmm. I love seeing friends with drive. You know, just I don't, I want to say everyone. Everyone's around me is inspiring me. Science is inspiring me. I've got my vaccine. I can get yeah. back to life. You know, I yeah. I feel like the world just for me right now things feel optimistic hmm. and. 
as much fun as I've had in the past year amidst the chaos, I didn't really feel like a light at the end of the tunnel. And mm. so there's just a collective with everyone doing and creating. Everyone's giving me optimism and hope. So that nice. seems very like flighty 60s kind of style <laughs> answer. But, well, but you I'm were listening to cassette tapes here. Yeah. Get your eight track out next, I guess. <laughs> no, I think that's a nice answer. I mean, it's, it is, there's been a shift for sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's something, you know, like I'm getting on an airplane next month for the first time in a year wow. and a half. And I will put money down. I will hug the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> just so excited. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like there's a lot of hope around. There just feels yeah. like a collective. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm going to enjoy it while I feel it. Hopefully it lasts for a long time. Cool. Well, <laughs> And again, people should look you up on YouTube and I'll include that link everywhere. But thanks so much, Kelly. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This was awesome. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RobbieAssad.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself.